Do you make God sick? Is what you're doing in your life something that God has a revulsion in His stomach over? To see what we do, how we act, our motives and our thoughts, does it just make God sick? Amazingly, that's how God wrote to the church in Laodicea. Here is a bunch of Christians who probably would have answered the same way that we were answering those questions in our minds. Of course not. Of course we're not making God sick. Look, we're here. We're, we're worshiping God. We, we, we love the Lord, right? And so it's, it's, of course God's not upset at us. He's not sick with the things that we're doing. And yet Jesus is going to write here to these Christians at the church at Laodicea, and He uses just some graphic language. I, I enjoyed going through the variety of translations of understanding what the Lord Jesus said He wanted to do. You have We read the ESV this morning, I want to spit you out of my mouth. We can go Old King James, I want to spew you out of my mouth. We have some of them that have, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. The picture of God is sick when He sees what these Christians are doing. And probably what is staggering about this letter as he writes to these Christians in Laodicea is that they don't see it. They don't even realize it. They have no comprehension as they worship God and as they serve God that the way God looks at what they are doing, He is outright enraged, He is upset and sick of the things that they are doing. And this isn't the only time that we see a picture of that in the Scriptures. Malachi is a great prophecy there where the prophet Malachi goes before the people of God and just says that the Lord wishes you would just shut the doors because He cannot stand your offerings anymore. Sure, you're doing the externals. Sure, you are bringing your sacrifices, but you are not doing the things that God has prescribed. You are bringing God your lame and broken sacrifices and not worshiping from the heart or giving Him your best. And the church in Laodicea falls into the same category as Jesus writes to them and He begins to tell them the problems that are going on there. And as we go into this lesson, as we're getting near the end of our Ignite series, we're going to do one more lesson. Yes, I know we are out of seven churches, but we have one more lesson that we will pick up next week to conclude the Ignite series. We're going to look at what had gone wrong with these Christians and then answer the question, what can we do to make sure that we do not fall into the same trap? Before we get into that though, notice in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3, you'll see Jesus' self-description here. You'll see what He describes Himself in some, some unique and interesting pictures. He begins with, I am the Amen. What an interesting beginning. And I was like, well, let's look that up. A, a strong affirmation of what is stated is the most literal meaning of that. And it is a word that Jesus used a lot in the Gospels while He was on the earth. How often Jesus would begin to teach the people and remember what He would say, truly, truly, I say to you, or if you're old King James memorizing grew up, verily, verily, I say to you. Well, that is amen, amen. A affirmation of the facts that are about to be stated. This is saying a yes to the things that I'm about to tell you. Assuredly, these things 
are true. And so Jesus describes Himself as the Amen, which is somewhat curious. He is the yes. He is the strong affirmation as the Apostle Paul would describe Him in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 when he says, For every one of God's promises is yes in Him. Therefore, the Amen is also spoken through Him by us for God's glory. It begins with Jesus picturing Himself as He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the yes. He is the true one. He is the one who is the the fulfillment and keeping of all the things that God said, God and God has promised. And that's where the rest of verse 14 goes, if you notice. The Amen, the faithful and true witness. And so He is not only in His actions the yes and the fulfillment of all of God's promises, Christ also says that His words are also the fulfillment of God's promises. His words are true. His words are faithful and just and trustworthy. You can believe the things that He says. That sets up for an interesting beginning. We'll look at the other description here in just a minute. But just consider what Christ is doing as He writes to this church that makes the Lord sick. And He's saying, believe Me when I tell you this. What I say is true. I am the fulfillment of God's Word and God's promises and all that I say is trustworthy and faithful. I know that you think that you are Christians who are doing what is right, but believe me when I tell you, you make God sick. You see the setup of what He's doing here about I'm telling you the truth. I am the faithful witness. I'm the true witness. I'm telling you the things that are going on. He adds one more picture there at the end of verse 14 to layer this beginning to this church in Laodicea with the beginning of God's creation. Now this is not saying that Christ was the first one created. That's not the idea. In fact, the picture is much more about a commencement that these things began... In Christ, the creation was done through Him. That He is the commencement of creation. The beginning of creation. Therefore, placing Him first in rank and first in power. He is God. He is divine. He carries all authority. And you may have a a different translation than just the beginning of God's creation. Some of the other ones capture that idea of Him being the one who is also the part of creation. Holman Christian Standard uses the originator of God's creation. New Revised Standard, the origin of God's creation. NIV uses the ruler of God's creation. It's trying to capture all of those elements that He has authority, He has rule, He is number one in might and power, and He is part of the creation process. And it's the same picture like in John 1 and verse 1 that it was in the Word that all things were created through Him. Is that He is the Creator. Not the created, but to begin this statement to tell them, I want you to understand that I also possess authority in the things that I'm telling you. And so if I were to sum up those three images, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, in the beginning of creation, these three things, the message that probably was intended to the church in Laodicea was Christ is the faithful and trustworthy One who has accomplished all things. He is trustworthy in what He says, and what He says will happen because He is the ruler. Because He possesses all authority over all creation. 
And we'll see how that all comes around as we move through this letter to the church in Laodicea. That this is the power and the point that Jesus is trying to get across to these Christians. Is believe me what I tell you and understand that I have the authority of the things that I promise against you. If you do not turn before it is too late. Verse 15. I know your works. Um, Sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. Remember in our last lesson, we saw a very positive letter by Christ back in chapter 3 and in verse 8. I know your works. And remember there was not any uh, condemnation whatsoever to Philadelphia. We spent a whole letter talking about the security that these Christians had found in Christ. That even though they were rejected by the world, they were secure in Christ. Their salvation was there because they were following Jesus, it didn't matter what people did to them, whether they persecuted them, whether they killed them, they're with Christ. Here is the utter opposite. Here is to the church of Laodicea, and I know your works, but it's not good. There's nothing good stated about this congregation in the works that they've done. And he describes the problem there in verses 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm. And neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth. The problem is that they are lukewarm. Now the tendency has been to take the imagery here in verse 15 and say that, well, God would rather you be either on fire and zealous for Him or be a complete and utter rebel towards God than rather be in the middle. And I will submit to you that I don't believe there's any advantage over here to the cold-hearted, stubborn, rebellious sinner against God to say, well, you'd be better off over in that camp. Instead, there is a little bit of geography that is going on here when he writes this to Laodicea. Laodicea was in a very interesting, unique situation. To the north of the city of Laodicea was a city called Hierapolis. And it was renowned for its hot springs. It had hot water there. And people would go there for miles and miles for their belief of the healing waters and to be able to have hot water. Imagine jacuzzi style. I mean, this is great stuff to have hot water. And that's the idea. Here is this, this, this place, this city, that people all around would come and appreciate these hot springs that were in the city. To the south was a city called Colossae. And it was renowned for its cool, cold waters. And it was renowned that they were pure and drinkable waters. Now, Laodicea was not a bunch of ding-dongs. And they go, oh, well, shame, we don't have any of that. They tried piping in the water from up in Hierapolis and tried to bring it down the seven miles to them. And it encountered a number of problems. Problem number one, guess what after seven miles? It was lukewarm water. It wasn't the hot water that they had hoped. The second problem was the water was extremely impure. And so it was usable for nothing. They couldn't use that water. It had gotten so many different deposits and different kind of bacteria picked up along the way. The water was no good. That is the play on words that Jesus is coming to with Laodicea is He is saying, you Christians are useless. You have no value whatsoever. And it was a play upon the city. Don't you wish you were hot or cold? How much better to the city of the north to have hot water to use? 
or the city to the south that had cold water to use, but you have neither, and that has no value to me. And so he uses their geographical situation to describe their spiritual condition. They are useless in that city, just like their water was useless. You are fitting the bill in your recognition and your statement about Christ. Your service, your faith, all of your worship has no value to me because you are lukewarm Christians. And that's really, I think, the more the idea than saying, boy, you know, if you don't get on fire for God, you might as well just, you know, I don't think that's working, that God would just rather you be just completely giving up on God. That's not the idea. But he is driving at the picture of you think that you're doing something well and serving God and being useful for God when in fact you're not. Do you see that there in, in verse 17? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. You don't even see how poor your spiritual condition is. You don't see how pitiable you are before God. You think you are rich. You think you are strong. You think you are faithful. And you are useless before Me because you are lukewarm Christians. And so what I wanted to spend a few minutes doing is just trying to do our best to identify What does lukewarm Christianity look like? Well, what does that mean? What were they doing? What exactly could that look like in our lives that we would need to hear to realize, well, we're not on fire for God and our service to God is not what it needs to be that we have cooled down and become useless before God. A couple of things that we're going to do. I'm going to spend, uh, I think it was about 11. We'll just look at about 11 different things to consider. One, lukewarm people attend worship fairly regularly because they think that is what they have to do, not because that's what they want to do. The heart of this is revealed when we wonder if we have to come to church on Sunday night or Wednesday night. Lukewarm people have have to come to worship. Christians want to worship. And I use the Mark 7, 6-7. If I had time, I'd turn to all the passages to back these statements up. I don't have time for that, so you can just jot them down and go look at them a little bit later. Where he cried out to the people there who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from them. And in vain they worshipped the Lord, is what Jesus is using there in Mark 7, verses 6-7 through there. That is revealed in our hearts as well. I have to go, right? That's just what I have to do. Is there a a love for God that says, I want to worship? One of the best things I've heard from my my daughter this morning. (laughs) My daughter says, I am really happy about today. She said, there's three reasons why I'm excited about today. I'm like, really? Okay. Three reasons. All right, let's hear them. She goes, number one, we get to go to Papa's house. All right, here we go. (laughs) Number two... It's singing tonight, and I want to be singing. I was like, that's good. Number three was it's Halloween. (laughs) I was really excited about that. Yes, we want to worship. How exciting to be the Lord's day. It's not a, oh man, it's the Lord's day. I've got to go to church. I want to be here. I want to worship. Lukewarm people look at worship and say, I have to go. Christians say, this is great. 
What a great joy to want to come and sing songs like we got to sing this morning and praise our Lord for His sacrifice, for His goodness, for His graciousness. And lukewarm Christians say, well, I guess we have to or do we have to? Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. I think this is one serious problem that we encounter all the time in our dealings with the world is that we desire to fit in here amongst other Christians, but we also desire to fit in with the world. We also desire to fit in with everybody around us. We don't want to stand out. We care so much about what people think, about what we're doing. We care about what our neighbors think. We care about what our co-workers think. And so often, we're not caring about, well, what does God think about my life? What does God think about what I'm doing? What does God think about the decisions that I'm making? And so often we are pulled into a situation where we think, it, well, i got to see what everybody else thinks about what I'm doing. And we make decisions based upon what is the path of least resistance rather than decisions of what does God want me to do today? What would be good for the kingdom? What do I need to do in service to God? And so often we're always thinking about everything else that propels us in decision making rather than is this what God would have me to do? Is this what would be pleasing to God? Or is this a decision that makes God sick? Is this a decision in my life that is revolting to Him? But I make that decision because I don't want people to reject me. I don't want people to think of me strange. I don't want people to see me as some weirdo, as some kind of Bible zealot. And so I don't make those decisions because I just want to be able to not rock the boat. And so I fit in with God as best I can and the people at the church, but I also fit in with the world so that nobody sees anything unusual about me. I think that's the path of lukewarm people. And it is one of the things, Matthew 23, that's a whole section there where Jesus just blows out the Pharisees and the scribes for their hypocrisy as He gives them a variety of woes to them for that kind of thinking and that kind of behavior as well. Number three. Lukewarm people do not really want to be saved from their sins. This sounds kind of strange. But let me drive at what I think we see going on as well. We are, want to be saved from the penalty of our sins. But it's not that we really hate sin. It's just that we're upset that something's going to happen to us because of what we've done. We really see that a lot in our society. Have you noticed that all of the sorrow and repentance only happens after you're caught? It's, I'm sorry I'm about to be punished for what I've done. It's not a sorrow of, you know what, that's right, that was wrong, I was awful, I shouldn't have done that. No, no. It's how can I get the punishment lessened so that I do not suffer something more severe or so that people think highly of me. You can think of all the various sports figures you want who fall right into that bucket every single week. Of, oh, now I've got to do something or say something to try to get out of this horrible thing that's about to happen to me. 
And we can do the same thing toward God is what is the least amount that I can do so that I can avoid hell? Because I don't want to go there. But it's not that I love God or care about God. It's not that I'm fully devoted to Him or seeking Him with all of my heart. You know what it is? I just don't want that bad consequence. And so what's the bare minimum that I can do to slide right by the fires of hell and squeeze my way into heaven on a last second play there? It's kind of the attitude we often take toward God. And it comes out with questions that usually begin with the statement, do you think God would be... And we fill in the blank. Do you think God would be really upset if I did this? Or do you think God would really be mad if I did that? Or do you think God would be upset if we didn't do this? And we we have this kind of rationale of, what is the bare minimum that I can do that will still keep me out of hell? Not what can I do for God, it's what is the very least I can do. That's lukewarm Christianity. And we have to be careful that we don't have that attitude that says, oh, well, let's do what little I can do because I'm so afraid of hell. Understand that God is calling for the heart. Do you love Him? Do you want to serve Him? Will you be devoted to Him? And it's not just simply about avoiding a bad outcome. But we act and make decisions because we love the Lord our God. I thought this was an interesting way to put it as well, based upon Ephesians chapter 4, where we are told to put off the old self, to kill the old self and put on the new self. Do we believe that the new life is actually better than the old sinful life? I think that's an interesting characteristic that we sometimes have is we may feel trapped in this new life for Christ looking back longingly at all the things that we used to do before how we used to enjoy the ways of the world how we used to be able to spend our time doing a variety of different things that God has now told us and we understand we cannot do but oh but we so want to do And I think sometimes we have that attitude of, well, I think I'd rather live that life. And that's reflected often in our lives ourselves. When we show our lives to be entirely different Monday through Saturday than Sunday, it reflects this kind of thinking. That the world is a better way to live. I want to do those things out there. And so I will do those things And then somehow I'll try to put the God facade back on on Sunday so that he's not too upset at me for what I've been doing over there that I really like. Lukewarm Christianity says, I'm going to live like that old lifestyle because I enjoy that more than I enjoy serving God and obeying his commands. I thought this was a good thought from Matthew chapter 10. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors or their co-workers or friends because they do not want to be rejected and they do not want to make people uncomfortable talking about private issues like religion. (laughs) Have you noticed that the Bible has become an issue in our society that you're supposed to keep to yourself? Have you noticed that flow of society of, you know, it's okay to believe whatever you want to believe, just shut up about it. Don't talk to anybody about it. Keep it to yourself. And if you say something, then then you're out of bounds. And it's easy to fall into that same kind of thinking of, yeah, we just need to keep it to ourselves. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to, we want to rock the boat or anything like that. 
And it's very easy to follow along that train of, of thought and remember we are called to share the gospel. This is not something that is optional for Christians. We must share the good news to everybody. We must tell people that we believe in Jesus. We must tell people we love Jesus and we want to serve Him and we want them to do the same. And we want them to know why we enjoy coming to worship and why we like praying and why we like studying the Bible. And and why our life is better in Christ, catch how that connects to the last one, than where we were before. Instead, sometimes we have a hard time explaining why the new life is better than the old life because we're still longing for the old life rather than enjoying the new life. We need to be people who are constantly sharing our faith and are not concerned about rejection. We're not concerned if people say no. And that's one of the best things that you and I have in this society that we live in right now is what is the worst that your friend or your neighbor can say to you is no. That's about the worst that can happen. And yet we are so intimidated by that. And I'm with you. I'm, I'm intimidated by that. I don't like it when people say no and give you that crazy look of, boy, you're in that case. I, I don't like it any more than you do. I, I don't like being a punching bag. You know, I'm not crazy either. But this is not a choice. We must share the good news. We must tell people about what Christ has done for us. We must tell people about the punishment that's going to come to those who don't. We must be on fire for God and not be concerned about making people uncomfortable by talking about something that affects their eternal soul. I don't know what number I'm on now. We're coming down the line here. We're moving right along. I think this is an easy problem that we also have is that we compare our goodness by looking at the world. We often think that we are sound, solid, zealous Christians because we look at what the world is doing and we see that we're doing better than them. We are doing a vast improvement. Well, we don't do all the bad things that they do. We're not as awful as them. You should see what my neighbors are doing on Friday nights. And, and so we often then measure ourselves by the world and say, well, we're not as bad as them. And since I'm not as bad as them, I'm satisfied with my spiritual condition. And we are not concerned about measuring ourselves to the desire and love that God has called us to. We're just simply satisfied by the fact that, well, you should see all the other people that I know, and we're better than them, right? And that's a dangerous attitude. It's a dangerous attitude because, one, we're not better than anybody. We're all sinners who need the grace and mercy of God. And two, it causes us to be satisfied and maintain a a lackluster state of spirituality that is not acceptable to God. It helps us to remain lukewarm in our lives. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus and that Jesus is part of their lives, but it's only a part. And it's a small part. We give a section of our time and our money and our thoughts, but He's not allowed to be in charge. I think that's something that's, that's a, a, an easy problem for us to fall into is, yes, I love the Lord. 
I give him some of my time. I'm here worshiping. I gave. And so he is a part of my life. But you think about the New Testament. Is there any place where Jesus came along and said, Will you please just give me a part of your life? I know you all are busy. I know there's a lot of things going on. There's good stuff out there. Will you please just give me a part? Think about all the texts that talk about picking up your cross and following me. To leave behind father, mother, brothers, sisters. To give all that you have to follow Him. Pictures like the pearl of great price. Pictures like the mustard seed. These images of look at what a great kingdom we are involved in. Look at how great it is. And will you not give up everything to be part of that? Will you not sacrifice it all? Will you not give everything it takes to be in that kingdom of God? So often I think that we believe that we are in a good place because we have given a part and we have failed to recognize that God has asked for 100%. He's asked for all of us. He's asked for our complete being. Think about the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 calling for us to be living sacrifices before God. That we are giving all of ourselves to Him. And often we are just willing to give Him a fraction rather than letting Him control our lives, rather than Him being the one that rules over everything that we say and that we do. Lukewarm Christians love God. Lukewarm people love God, but they don't love Him with all their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength. And they assure themselves by thinking that this sort of total devotion is not really possible except for the average person. It's only basically for zealots and preachers. That's a crazy phenomenon that I observe. Is Loving the Lord your God okay? Love Him with all your heart, soul, and strength? Isn't that kind of crazy? Isn't that a little much? That's reserved for the, the real spiritual. You know, Dan and Emil, okay, yeah, they, they should do that. But you know, us average guys, that's kind of... Kind of a lot, you know. What are you expecting out of us? You know, that's why they're elders. I'm just down here. You know, don't have to do that. And we can do that same kind of thinking of, oh, I love God, but will I love Him all the way to the bitter end? Will I give everything up for Him, or do we perceive that kind of devotion as completely radical, completely nuts? Those Christians, when you read the book of Acts, they radically loved God. They loved Him with a devotion that was completely unseen by any kind of other love in that world. These people went the extra mile. They went the extra mile to serve. They went the extra mile to get together. They went the extra mile to deal with any of the issues that might have come along. They'd say, we'll get together anyway, even if the the authorities tell us to to not preach this Jesus. They, They still would go ahead and preach Jesus, even to the point that they would die. Lukewarm people say they love God, but they will not do it with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength. And I submit to you that this kind of devotion is possible and it is commanded of us. What do you think of 
in this world. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more often than eternity in heaven. I think this is a I think this is a challenge for all of us. It's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day schedules and activities where we think about what we've got to get done today, what we have to get done this week, all the things that are on our schedule for this month, and don't spend time thinking intently about what God wants us to do and what we can do for Him. We've got this, you know, I've got it on, I've got my computer screen. I've got iCal on there and it's just a big list of here's all the things that have to get done. All the doctors and appointments and Grace has got to be here, there. It's all listed on there. Great. But do we think about, okay, well, what are we going to do to devote ourselves to God today? When are we going to be praying? When are we going to be studying and reading? When are we going to be serving other Christians? When are we going to be teaching? When are we going to be reaching the lost? Lukewarm people think about the things of this world and do not think about the things of God. What about this? Lukewarm people probably drink and swear less than average, and besides that, there's not really much of a difference between a Christian and a typical unbeliever. Do we look really different from the world or not? Is there a marked contrast between that's the world, but there's the Christian? Or is it just a minor little tweak that, okay, well, we don't say some of the things that they say, and it might be a thing or two we don't do, but is there really a big difference between us and them? Is it obvious? Is it clear to people around us that there is undoubtedly these are followers of Jesus? They're way different than anybody else. Is that seen? Is it obvious? Or are we just a little different because for an hour we're here, but everything else during the week looks exactly the same? We even have terminology like that. We'll talk about a neighbor or a friend who's a very good moral person but isn't a Christian. And I understand what we mean by that, that they're not doing a lot of awful things, but that somewhat good moral person, you're not trying to convince them to come to church one hour a week and now they're going to be good. That's all they needed. They just needed to come to church on Sunday and now they'll be, they'll be alright because they're already good moral people. I think that's kind of how we think sometimes. Is Well, they're kind of already a lot. No, no, they're not. They're not at all. They're nowhere close. Because they might be moral and virtuous, but Christ is demanding a full devotion to Him. And being a generally good person has nothing to do with the great deep devotion and love for Jesus. There are all kinds of people in this world who are good people, quote unquote. And what we mean by that is they're not as bad as everybody else. But they don't need just an hour on Sunday. And we don't need just an hour on Sunday. We need lives that are on fire for Christ. And that's what God is looking for. And that's what He is seeking from us. Last one. Lukewarm people walk by sight. Not by faith. So easy to do in this world. 
is that we do not trust our lives to Christ. We trust our lives to ourselves. We are in charge. We must do these things. I have to take care of everything in this world. I can't dare put my trust in Him. We talked about that in our Bible class a little bit this morning, talking about finances. Will we trust God to take care of us? If we give as we know we ought to give and we are helpful to people in this world, will we trust that it's going to be okay? Or do we hold on tightly because we don't believe there's anybody taking care of us except myself? And what I want to leave you with then this morning is the last few minutes is talking about what He says we can do. What can we do to break free from this situation? Notice there in verse 17 again, he describes there that they think that they're rich and prospered and need nothing, and they're not realizing that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We need to see, number one, that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We need to really be honest with ourselves, look squarely in the mirror and realize, are we truly on fire and zealous for God? Are we loving Him with all of our heart and soul and strength? Or are we actually miserable, pitiable, poor, and blind and don't really have anything? It's only then that we'll seek out the things that we need. If we truly recognize where we are before God, and I'm not trying to be too overly uh, ogreish, though I am being somewhat, those questions are there not because that's the litmus test of lukewarm Christianity, but I'm just trying to come up with some ways for you to think about are you as far along as you thoroughly think you are? Just to try to open a window because we think that we are rich and we're doing fine and we're doing good and we're great. And we can be completely wrong. We can think that we're right on the train to heaven and we are going to have eternal life and we are plunging our souls right into the pit of eternal punishment and not even know it. We have to honestly evaluate ourselves because only then will we seek the things that we need. If we were physically naked and had absolutely no clothes, would we not do something to change that outcome? If we were just blind and couldn't see, would we not do something to physically change the outcome if we were blind? We would. We would immediately go, I need to get some clothes. I need to do something to change my physical situation so that I can see and so that I can be clothed so that I'll not be ashamed. Brethren, we need to do it spiritually because we're spiritually blind and we're spiritually naked and we're spiritually poor. And we can change that outcome, but it will only happen if we see ourselves for who we truly are. And we start putting our efforts in the right places and stop putting our efforts in all of the stuff in this world that, friends, this world is perishing. There is nothing that we will take with us. There is no value in the things of this world outside of anything that is godly. And we put so much effort in such foolish things in this world and act like these things are important and they're nothing. We have our citizenship in this world far too deeply and do not see that our hearts and our citizenship must be in heaven 
And I don't care about the things of this world. And I don't care about people and thinking that what they're going to think about me. And if I'm some crazy Christian because I love Jesus, I'm not going to care about that. And I don't care if they say no. And I don't care if they think I'm crazy because I'm going to be here for three hours on Sunday. I mean, that is some crazy devotion right there. Because God gives us how many hundreds of hours in a week and you're going to be here for three? That's crazy. How could you do that? Because God is the most important thing. That's why. Look at what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and this ointment to anoint your eyes that you may see. Buy from me. Here is Christ saying, I'll give you what you need. Will you not seek after me? I'll give you the spiritual things that you need. Please come to me and I'll give it to you. And I like verse 19. I need verse 19 right there. This is the right place for verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Do you see Christ backing up just a second and going, I know I'm thrashing you, Laodicea in church. I know I am just tearing into you. But those I love, I rebuke and discipline. He said, I'm saying this because I love you. I'm not trying to rip you apart. I'm trying to get you to open your eyes and see where you are. See that you're making God sick in your service and attitude. That God is looking for far more from our hearts far more from our minds that we will serve Him. And so He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I'd put it this way. I think what Jesus said is don't get defensive now. And I'm sure you're saying too late. (laughs) Too late. Because that's the way we are. Don't tell me that I'm not doing what I need to do. I can imagine the layout of seeing church just here. Can you imagine the scroll unrolling? And here's what Christ says to the church of layout of seeing. It's like, whoo! Man! Easy! Yeah. Lord, we're here! I mean, come on now! And he, you make me sick, is how he starts the letter. But he says, now don't. Don't get defensive and walk away and just throw it all away now. Don't do that. It's alright. I love you. That's what Christ says. And that's why I'm saying these things. And that's why He continues. So be zealous and repent. So be zealous and repent. See the deficiencies. Repent and push forward. Turn away from this worldly thinking. Stop being like the world. Stop being concerned about the things of this world. And start being focused on God. Start thinking about our worship toward God and our service toward God and our love for God and be zealous for God and light the fire that is there within you. You have it there within you. I know you love God. I know you do. Fan the flames. Don't let it go out. Seek Him. Keep pushing forward. Continue to serve and worship and rekindle your loyalty for Christ. Look at verse 20 now. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he will eat with me. Do you love that picture? I love this picture. Here is Christ saying, I'm here if you want me. 
The choice is yours. You decide. Will you have a relationship with Him or not? It's all on you and me. It's a decision. Do you want to have a relationship with Him or not? It's it's time to be real is what Christ is telling the church in Laodicea. I know you, you say you're Christians, but really... Do you really want to have a relationship with Him? Or are you more interested in engaging in the affairs of the world? Do you truly want to be with Him? Do you truly love Him? Let us not forget what we've seen all throughout these seven churches is that Christ has done everything on His end to make a relationship possible. Remember, before Christ, it didn't matter if you wanted a relationship or not. We're separated from God. We're dead in our sins. The wrath of God completely stands against us. Only because of Christ, there now is the door of opportunity to have a relationship with Him. He died on the cross so that we can be with Him. He says, I've done everything that I can do, but I'm not going to just force you to be in a relationship with Me. I'm not going to come in, kick the door down, take you away by kidnapping and say, now you must be Mine. No. What a picture. Just patiently knocking. And the Greek is continually. It just keeps knocking. You're going to open the door or not? Or are you going to keep the, do- the, the doors shut and barred? He's knocking. Are you going to have a relationship with Him or not? Will you choose to have that relationship that Christ wants you to have Because He loves you so much. And He has done everything to take away every obstacle so that you can be with Him. And now He just stands there patiently knocking. Will you be in a relationship with Him? He concludes in verse 21 to the overcomers, to those who conquer, I will grant Him to sit with Me on My throne as I also conquered and sat down with My Father on His throne. This is a crazy picture. And here's what I mean by that. What king sits on the throne and says, you know what? I'm going to make all my subjects sit on the throne with me. I'm going to take my rule, sit down, have my scepter. You know what I want to have? All of my subjects, they all sit here and they're going to rule with me and they're going to reign with me. Who does that? Nobody. Whoever gets in charge, I'm in charge. And it's my way, and it's my rules, and it's my laws, and we are subjects, and we have to go, okay, we have no power because you're the king. Here's the one and only king who sits on the throne and says, now you want to sit here with me? What? Especially when you factor in that we have no right to be anywhere near this kingdom. That He is taking us lowly servants who are deserving of God's wrath. And He says, now, if you'll open that door and let me in and have a relationship with me, I'll plop you right here on this throne with me and we'll rule together. Sound good? Sounds great. Come to Jesus. He'll take away your sins. He'll give you eternal life. He'll give you the blessings that there is to be given to you. To reign with Him eternally to be seated with Christ forevermore if you'll choose to have a relationship with Him. If you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength.
We're going to sing this song. We invite you to come to Jesus. Turn away from your sins. Confess Jesus is the Lord who must be obeyed. He is the King. And be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Won't you come while we stand for what we sing?